It really is good to be here with you. Um, it's, uh, it's a privilege to be able to open God's Word with you. Uh, before I start, I'd like to ask you a favor, though. Um, if you would join with me in prayer one more time, just humbling ourselves before God and asking that He speak to us and give us ears to hear. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, but that you gave us your spirit, the spirit that cries out, Daddy, Father. So, Father, today we ask that you might speak to us through your word, that you might humble us, that you might open our eyes, that we might see Jesus for who he is, and that our hearts might find their full delight in him and that he might be magnified in, your, in our lives, and that your kingdom might come. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to take a look, look at the story of two men, two broken men. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 5, starting at, uh, sorry, John chapter 4, starting at verse 43. If you have your scriptures, if you could take them out and turn there. And while you're turning there, let me give you just a little background to the story. If you remember, when Jesus was in Canaan, he performs his first miracle there. And he performs it kind of reluctantly and kind of covertly. But then he and his disciples go to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, Jesus does the big reveal. I mean, he lets his Messiahship be known far and wide. He, you remember, he goes to the court of the Gentiles, the place that was to be a place of prayer, and he sees all these vendors there selling animals for the sacrifices. And not only are they selling animals for those sacrifices, but they're gouging the people. And he sees what they've done to his father's house, and he is infuriated. And he makes a whip out of cords, and he drives the animals out, and he turns the tables over, and he is the talk of Jerusalem. And then he and his disciples, after the Passover feast is over that they were there to celebrate, they head back north, back to Galilee. And the best way, the fastest way to get to Galilee is to pass through territory known as Samaria. Now, I'm sure you remember that the, the, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans returned the feeling. There was deep animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews felt like the, the, the Samaritans were half-breed heretics. They were half-breeds because they had intermarried with the Gentiles, and, and they had tainted their pure Jewish blood. They were heretics because they believed that the place to worship was not Jerusalem, as it's clearly spoken of in the scripture, but the place to worship was Mount Gerizim, which was conveniently located in Samaria. <laughs> so these people were despised by the Jews, and the Jews despised them, and Je Jesus and his disciples passed through this land. And Jesus has an opportunity to have this private conversation with a woman from Samaria. And he tells her that he knows about her broken relational and sexual past. And she is so impressed by him that she invites the rest of the town to come hear him. And he stays there for two days talking with the people in Samaria. John chapter 4, verse 42. Listen to what happens. This is the people from Samaria. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Remarkable. Jesus has not done a single miracle there other than tell this woman he knows her past. 
All he has done is speak to them. And at his word, they come not to some faith thinking that he's a prophet. We know that you really are the savior of the world. This is total and it's, it's remarkable the faith that these people have. And then from there, Jesus and his disciples go back to Galilee. Look with me, chapter 4, verse 43 in John. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Canaan and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. So Jesus and his disciples, they, they, they come out of Samaria having seen this tremendous conversion. And they go into Galilee. This is where Jesus grew up. And Jesus says to his disciples, guys, it's not going to be quite so easy here. These people think they know who I am. I grew up with these folks. They think they know me. The only way that they are going to see who I really am is if I perform signs and wonders. Words aren't going to be enough with these folks. They won't believe unless they see signs and wonders. Well, Jesus goes back to Canaan, and word of his arrival, he's, he's, he's already pretty famous because of what he just did in Jerusalem. Word of his arrival spreads. And it appears that when he was in Jerusalem, not only did he drive out the people from the temple courts and, and, and have this zeal for his father's house, but he performed signs and wonders there. So he has this reputation of being this revolutionary prophet, this healer. And, and when he comes to Canaan, news about him spreads. And it spreads far enough to reach Capernaum, which is about a two-day trip north of Cana. And this man who has a son who is on the edge of death, this man who is a royal official, a man of dignity and standing and power and wealth, his son is on the edge of death. And this man is so desperate for his son to be healed. He loves his son so much that he makes the two-day journey and he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs Jesus. This man of dignity and power is reduced to a place of a beggar at the feet of Jesus out of his love for his son. Now, you've got to believe that a man of this power, a man of this wealth, is, he, this is not his first option. He has exhausted every other possibility. He has used his wealth to buy the best doctors, the best medicine, and, but no matter what he does, he is, his son is dying. And he so loves his son that he is willing to utterly humiliate himself at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is his last hope. 
He realizes he is powerless. He is desperate. And in his power and his desperation, in his desire, to, he, he can't even, he loves his son so much that he could care less what people think about him. And he, he surrenders his reputation. He surrenders whatever people think about him. And he begs Jesus to come back to Capernaum and heal his son. And Jesus looks at this man, compelled and humbled before him out of love for his son, And he says this to him, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Ouch. This man is filled with love for his son. And these are kind of judgy, hard words. Now, the English language doesn't help things here at all. You see, one of the shortcomings of the English language is that we don't differentiate between second person singular and second person plural. But it's interesting that that all of the the English dialects do. There's a way of differentiating. So I grew up in New Jersey. So let me translate this into New Jerseys for you, okay? (laughs) Unless you guys see miraculous signs and wonders, you guys will never believe. This is you plural, okay? He's saying, unless you guys, he's he's talking to the man, but he's talking about everyone. Unless y'all, to bring it into the local vernacular, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will never believe. Okay, so that takes the edge off a little bit, but still, still, I mean, it's, this guy's like, what are you talking, I just want, it it would have been easy for this man to take offense. Jesus is, is, seems to be unkind here, and yet this man, he could care less. He has no concern of what people think about him. He has a singular passion. He wants his son to live. Jesus, you can say what you want about me. You can judge me. I don't care. Just come to Capernaum. My child, my child. It goes from his son to his child is dying. Come, please, just have mercy on me. I am powerless, and my son is dying. And Jesus looks at him and he says, You may go. Your son will live. And he takes Jesus at his word. He didn't have much option here. Jesus was his only option, and Jesus tells him to go that his son would be well. And so he takes Jesus at his word, and he starts the two-day trip back to Capernaum. And on the second day of his travels, he looks down the road, and he sees his servants coming toward him. And when they get there, they say to him, It's it's amazing. It's amazing. Your son has made a miraculous recovery. Almost almost instantly, boom, like that. He was healed. He was well. And he said, when did this happen? And I said, it was was one o'clock yesterday. And then he realized that was the exact time that Jesus said, your son will live. And it says, and he believed. He belie- you say, wait a minute, I thought he took Jesus at his word. No, he, initially it, it appears that he thought Jesus was a prophet from God who could foretell the future. Now he comes to a place that he realizes that Jesus is God who forms the future. He moves from a place of believing that Jesus has spoken a true word from God to believing that Jesus is the true word of God who has taken on flesh to dwell among us. The one who spoke the worlds into existence now speaks life into his dying son. But it says he and his household believed. 
how, how did that work? I mean, how was it that it went from his faith to the faith of his entire household? Some time ago, it was probably three years ago, Karen came to me and she said, Tim, so I think we should try tent camping. And I looked at her and I said, who are you? And what have you done with my wife? <laughs> she really is a remarkable woman. The older she gets, the more adventurous she gets. It's, it's uh, can't wait till she's 80. It's going to be. <laughs> but part of the reason that she wanted to try tent camping is because Karen just delights in the beauty of God in nature as it's been preserved in the national parks. I mean, just, there is in each of us this desire. While we tend to want to puff ourselves up, it is part of who we are to long to find pleasure in something that is far more beautiful, far greater than we are. To be made small by something majestic somehow delights the heart. And so, we decided, okay, well, let's, let's take a look. Let, what's, what's it take to get a tent campsite at one of these national parks, you know? And we look, and if you can get a site, it's a year and a half out. <laughs> because there is in all of us this desire to be overwhelmed by a beauty far greater than us, to be humbled before the grandeur of God. There is this intrinsic desire for that. But it goes past that because, you see, the joy that we find in a beauty greater than ourselves, the joy that we find in a splendor greater than ourselves, in something spectacular far beyond we could imagine, it is not fully realized until we speak of it and revel in it with somebody else. All right. It's been playoff time. and Grant me a football story, okay? Imagine this. Three guys are sitting on the couch. Their team is down by three points. There's two seconds left in the game. Their team's on the 17-yard on the line. They've got one play and one play only. And the guys are like, they're glued to the set. The ball is snapped. The defense blitzes. The quarterback is under pressure. He rolls out. The tight end goes out. He drags across the back of the end zone. He's got a defender holding one arm down. The quarterback's about to be tackled. He chucks the ball. The tight end reaches out one hand. One hand, he grabs the ball and pulls it in. As he's pulling it in, he gets hit by a linebacker and gets his teeth rattled. You know, he's still got the concentration to pull it in. And then, as the three of them are about to tumble out of bounds, he taps his toes down inbounds. Touchdown! And the three guys jump off the couch. They start slapping each other in all sorts of ways. And then they invariably say this to each other. Did you see that? Did you see? You, he's got a defender hole. He's got the other hand. The guy hits him, catches him, pulls. It was phenomenal. Did you? Yeah. And then the other guy turns and says, yeah, did you see that? Did you see the quarterback? He sidearms it out there. It was phenomenal. And they start slapping each other again. <laughs> Think about the question. Did you see that? The three of these guys are sitting on their couch with their eyes glued to the television set. Did you see that? No, I was up getting popcorn. <laughs> of course they saw that. Why do they, do, why do they go through this ritual of saying, did you see that? It's because they want to have the opportunity of, re, of finding the joy, of recounting the beauty, and then having someone echo it back and revel in it. This man comes home, and he sees his son well. And he scoops him up, 
and he hugs him and he kisses him and he kisses his wife, he hugs his servant, he kisses his dog. I mean, he's just overwhelmed with the glory of what's just happened. And then he says, did you see that? Did you see that? Our boy was dying and Jesus spoke and he's well. Did you see that? And there is this explosive, compulsive, compelling evangelism that happens as the joy of his heart and the power and the beauty of Jesus explodes. And he and his entire household believe. But it never would have happened if he had not allowed the brokenness of his life to drive him in humble, powerless need to the feet of Jesus. The prerequisite for that joy was a humble and broken falling as a beggar at the feet of Jesus. And there at his feet, he finds this prophet from Nazareth to be far more than he ever imagined. We turn our attention to the second broken man now. John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Once again, Jesus and his disciples returned to Jerusalem for another religious feast. And there was just outside of the temple, this pool of Bethesda. And this pool there, it was, it was rumored that on occasion the angel of the Lord would come and stir the waters of this pool and the first person in would be healed. And this pool was surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now think of a colonnade as like this huge Greco-Roman gazebo. Okay, so there's, there's all these gazebos, they provide shelter from the rain and from the sun. And it's right at a really busy intersection of people going to the temple people going to the temple who are really conscious about being good because they're going to visit God. There's shelter. There's a good crowd of people who are easily made to feel guilty. It's a perfect place for homeless, homeless and disabled people to hang out and beg. 
It's, it's the ideal setting. And on top of that, there's this pool that perhaps if you're able to get in in time, you might get healed. So this is like the perfect spot for, for the homeless and the disabled to beg. They've got a constant crowd coming through. They can work their guilt easy enough. You're going to see God, be kind like God is kind of thing. You want to gain some favor here, give to the poor. And so there's, there's this established homeless community. This, these disabled and the invalids are there begging. And as Jesus and his disciples pass by, there's this one particular invalid that they point out to him who's quite infamous. He's famous for how long he's been there. This man has been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus, asks, when Jesus hears that he's been an invalid for 38 years, Jesus says to him, comes up to him and he says, do you want to get well? What kind of a question is that? The man's been an invalid for 38 years. Of course he wants to be well. well not so fast, maybe. There is a tremendous resilience to the human character that when life gives us lemons, what do we do? We make lemonade, right? And that's a phenomenal characteristic of the, the resilience of the human character. When hard things come, we learn to make the best of them, right? We learn to make those hard things work for us. But sometimes we can get so comfortable drinking lemonade that we don't try and change our situation anymore. We get stuck in a bad situation. We've contented ourselves. It's too hard to change. We content ourselves with being stuck because after all, we're making it work for us. I mean, this guy, his, it wasn't a bad gig. He got to hang out by the pool all day, you know, chat with his friends. It was a steady stream of income for his begging. There's this tendency for us to be willing to be stuck where we're at. The story's told of three older men who are out hiking. This is not a true story. There's three older men <laughs> who are out hiking. And, the, and they, they come across this magic stone. And the first guy picks up the magic stone and he's like, this is amazing. I can hear out of my deaf ear. I got to find this stone. I can hear out of my deaf ear. And the, and the guy next to him, he, he reaches over and he grabs the stone. And he's like, my back. My back, is, it doesn't hurt. And, and my sciatica. My, my sciatica is healed. And he turns to hand it to the third guy, and the third guy goes, whoa, 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 keep that away. I'm on disability. <laughs> there is a certain extent where we can become, rather than being broken by our brokenness and longing for healing, we can make that, we can settle for that brokenness and try and make it work for us and get stuck and no longer be broken by our brokenness. And so Jesus asks him, he says, do you want to get well? And he says, Jesus, it's not my fault I'm not well. Nobody's here to help me. It's like, well, no, 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 no. Jesus didn't ask you whose fault it was that you were there, why you weren't well. He asked you if you wanted to get well. He asked, Jesus asked him if he wants to get well, and this guy makes an excuse and says, it's not my fault I'm stuck. It's not my fault I'm stuck. You know, you look at this guy, and I mean, it's hard for me not to despise this man, to be honest with you. He makes excuses. He's a coward. The Jews confront him about carrying his mat, and he's like, it's not my fault. The guy who healed me, he told me to carry it. And then 
when he doesn't know who the guy was, when he finds out it's Jesus, he goes and he rats out Jesus just so these, these religious leaders won't think he broke the Sabbath law, broke their Sabbath law. He's a man-pleasing, excuse-making coward. And it's hard not to despise him. So I was raised, you know, to, to be super independent and self-reliant, you know, and so it wasn't until my early 40s that I realized if I was going to have any hope ever of living any measure, of fulfilling the call of God and living a life that was honoring to God, if I had any hope of that, it would only be if I was surrounded by a band of brothers who were fully committed to living for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Me on, on my own, I am a guaranteed face plant. So I, I, I took me 40 years to realize that and a few face plants along the way. But, but so I, I joined up with this group of men who, were, who committed to living before God as faithful and true. And, and part of that community, part of the culture there was each person was expected to have a sponsor or a mentor. And so my sponsor's name was Tom. And I would meet with Tom and I'd say, Tom, here's the areas I'm struggling with. Here's the habitual sin patterns in my life that I just can't seem to be. And Tom would look at me and he'd say, Tim, how bad do you want it? And I would sigh. I'd say, Tom, Tom, you just don't understand. What I'm trying to tell you is that my wanter is broken. And I can't use my broken wanter to fix my broken wanter. Even if I wanted to, it wouldn't work. And he'd go a little cross-eyed. And then he'd look at me and he'd say, Tim, how bad do you want it? He wasn't asking me why I was stuck. He was asking me how bad I wanted it. And I said to him, Tom, this is why I'm stuck. I despise this man. This man is me. This man is me. And if I don't take that to heart and repent, this man's destiny is my destiny. Then Jesus said to him, Get up pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. I want you to understand the magnitude of this miracle. Okay, have any of you ever had a full cast on your leg? You know, you wear it for a couple months. You take it off and you're like, oh, I hope that'll grow back. <laughs> if you don't use muscles, the atrophy, this man hadn't used his muscles for 38 years. They were reduced to strings. And what about bones? Some of you struggle with weak bones. What do they tell you to do? Load-bearing exercises, right? Because a bone, when it gets, goes in compression, that's what stimulates bone growth. This man hadn't loaded his bones for 38 years. They were paper thin. He had strings for muscles, paper for bones. And Jesus says, get up. And not only get up and support your body weight, but get up and carry this heavy bed. The word of God speaks and muscles that were not there appear. The word of God speaks and bones that are not there are created by his creative power of his word. 
Neural pathways that had long since atrophied are regenerated. The ability to have the coordination to stand and not only stand but balance this mat is created from the create the word once again speaks creation into this very man's life. And he picks up his mat and he heads to the temple. And on his way to the temple, the Jewish leaders, they see him carrying this heavy bed. Now, the Jewish leaders had these laws, these Sabbath laws that they had instituted. God said not to work on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders said, okay, we're going to help God out a little bit. We're going to tell you all the details of what that means. And one of the things was, is you could not carry a load that was heavier or bigger than a certain size. Clearly, this man was violating their Sabbath laws. And so they turn on the blue lights and they pull him over. And they say, say you know, you're breaking the Sabbath here. You're violating the Sabbath laws, buddy. And he's like, oh, it's not my fault. It's not, this is kind of his habitual response. It's not my fault. The guy who healed me told me to pick it up. And they say, who told you to pick it up? I want you to appreciate the absurdity of that question. This man had been outside of the temple. For 38 years, these Jewish leaders had grown up walking past this man begging at the temple. They knew who this guy was. He was famous for how long he'd been there. And there he is, this man with the the strings for legs, standing before them, holding a heavy bed on his shoulder. And he says, the man who healed me, he's the one who told me to pick up my mat. Who who told you to pick up your mat? Okay, you're going to have to forgive me for this illustration, but it gets the point across, okay? You remember your history. Abraham Lincoln and his wife are at a play at Ford's Theater, and John Wilkes Booth comes up behind them while they're watching the play and shoots Abraham Lincoln in the back of the head and kills him, assassinates him. Now imagine this. Mrs. Lincoln is leaving after that tragedy at the theater, and she steps out of the theater, and a reporter rushes up to her and says, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? I, I, utterly absurd. I mean, the, the magnitude of what just happened makes that question utterly ridiculous. It is utterly inconsequential. Who told you to pick up? The man's standing there. He's been a, he's, how could they be so stupid? Now understand, these were some of the brightest boys in the room. These are the guys with MDivs. These are the guys with PhDs and postdoctoral degrees. You see, it's interesting to note that if our identity, if our security, if our, if our value is anchored in anything other than the love of Christ for us, if we anchor our value like these men did in their reputation, in their political power, in their religious power, in their wealth, in their standing, then when those things that we anchor our identity in, it doesn't matter how smart we are, when those things are threatened, we will say and believe the most stupidest of things. These incredibly intelligent men are so consumed with their own reputation and protecting their own identity 
that they cannot see the glory of God as it stares them right in the face. They are confronted with the undeniable power of God, and yet because they can see nothing but their own reputation and their own insecurities, they cannot see the power of God as it stands before them. Well, the man who was healed had no idea who it was because Jesus had slipped away. And so after his confrontation with the Jewish leaders, he heads to the temple. Now, it's interesting to note that the only reason this man is able to go to the temple is because of what Jesus has done. Not simply that Jesus has given him the legs to walk to the temple. Even if this man had someone to carry him to the temple, he would not have been allowed to go in. Because according to Old Testament law, the crippled, the lame, the maimed, the diseased, they were not allowed to draw near to the holy presence of God. They were not allowed in the temple. Jesus has made it so this man is able to draw near to God. And he, draw near, he draws near to God, and there at the temple, Jesus finds him. And he says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, this guy's been healed for, I don't know, 20 minutes maybe? I mean, what, what sin did he commit that's going to... This man committed the one sin that damns all men to hell. A failure to humble himself before the Lord of the world and confess Jesus Christ is Lord that you are the sovereign one, that you are my healer, you are my king, you are the savior of the world. This broken man is so full of himself that he cannot see Jesus. While the man of high standing humbles himself and finds Jesus to be far more than he ever imagined. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. So it was probably about four years ago. This was in our pre-tenting days. Karen and I took a trip down to Costa Rica, where we were going to do some hiking down there. And we had this tiny little cottage we stayed in. And... Um, You've noticed my last name is Vandermeer, that's, that's Dutch. And the Dutch are famous for two things, for being tall and for being tightwads. And, and I do resemble both of those. <laughs> so it turns out that one of the hikes we wanted to do was just a couple miles from our cottage. And I'm like, Kara, we can save some money. I'd like not get around. We can just have a pre-hike hike, you know? Um, and so, so she, she, she was in, and she bought in. It turns out, though, that we were a little further away from the hike we wanted, the trailhead than we thought, and, and it was uphill the entire way, and it was on steaming hot blacktop. And so about two-thirds of the way in our pre-hike hike, she turns to me, she says, we're getting a ride back. <laughs> There, there are times when you know there's no sense putting up an argument, and it was, that was one of those times. 
So we, so we get to the trailhead, and there's this, there's this observation platform, this, this, you know, this beautiful lookout, because the trail that we were going to hike actually went down into this gorge where there was this beautiful waterfalls. And so there was this, this viewing platform at the trailhead, and since our pre-hike hike was a bit more exerting than we had anticipated, we sat down at the viewing platform and looked out over this gorgeous valley. It was just spectacular. Was, you know, the, the, the jungle there is just, is just beautiful. And while we're sitting there recuperating, there's this, this very pretty young woman over in the corner taking selfies. Only she's not just taking selfies, she is taking selfies. I mean, she's every pose you could imagine, her hair to this side, her hair to that side. And she, the whole time she's got her back to the beauty. It's, it's, it's her backdrop for her selfie. And as the best I can remember, the entire time we sat there, this girl was taking selfies. And uh, it might have been judgy, but, but, but I was thinking, girl... Just put the selfie camera down and turn around. Yeah, I, you're beautiful. I'll give you that. Okay, you're beautiful. But there is a, if you just turn around, there is a beauty that can fill your soul in a way that your vain selfies never can. Turn around and see the beauty. Put down your selfie. There is a beauty and a glory and a majesty of God that I get frustrated with God. Like, God, how come you're so hard to see? How come you don't change me? How come you're so hard to see? He doesn't change me because I haven't been humbled by my brokenness. He's hard to see because I haven't put down my selfie camera and turned around. In God's severe mercy, he brings into each of our lives a brokenness. A brokenness that is intended not for us to make the best and get used to it, but a brokenness to drive us to him in humble repentance, to have us fall at his feet in powerlessness and need, and there at his feet find him far more powerful and beautiful and glorious, and our hearts explode with his goodness. And yet somehow in our brokenness, we refuse to be humbled. The children of Israel, God delivers them from exile. I'm sorry, God delivers them from captivity in Egypt. You know the story, the ten plagues, miraculously he delivers them. He takes them into the promised land and he brings them into this good land. And, and he says, you're, you're to drive out the people there. Drive them out because they will lead you into idolatry. And so the Israelites do a great job. They drive out most of the people, but there's some Canaanites who are pesky and they just can't seem to drive them out. And the scripture said God left those Canaanites there to test them. The purpose was for, for, for the, those Canaanites to bring the people to the point of saying, God, we are powerless to fulfill your will here. We need you. We humble ourselves before you. We fall on your power. But instead of doing that, the, the Israelites come up with a plan. They say, we can make this brokenness work for us. We're stronger than these Canaanites. We'll make them our servants. We'll make them serve us. Sure, we won't be fulfilling God's command in our life, but it's a small compromise, and we'll, we, can make, we can make this habitual sin work for us. Seems reasonable. 
except what happens? The Canaanites end up leading the people into idolatry and then into exile from God. God knew it was coming. And listen to what he says to the people. He says, but if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things happen to you, then in the later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you. I don't know where you're at in your walk of faith. But I do know this. Repentance is always the right move. Brokenness, humble, powerless need at the feet of Jesus is where we find joy, where we see his beauty. To put down our selfie camera and turn and see a beauty that fills our heart. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ is near. Turn and embrace the beauty of your Savior. Amen.